Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, powered by Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Cindy Meston, who is a professor of clinical psychology and director of the Female Sexual Psychophysiology Laboratory at the University of Texas at Austin. She is also author of the fantastic book, Why Women Have Sex, Understanding Motivations from Adventure to Revenge and Everything in Between. In this show, we're going to be talking about why human beings have sex. In fact, Cindy's research has found that there are at least 237 reasons. We'll be exploring some of the most and least common reasons for sex and how they differ for men and women. We'll also be diving into some of Cindy's other fascinating research, including her work on why people sometimes experience a disconnect between genital arousal and psychological arousal, as well as her work on how sexual arousal changes the sexual decisions we make. I can't wait for this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Cindy, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. It's wonderful to join you. You know, I've listened to many of your podcasts and really appreciate what you're doing to get the word out to people on sexuality. You're doing a great thing. So thank you. Well, thank you. And thanks so much for joining me. I cite your work on people's reasons and motivations for having sex all of the time. So I'm thrilled to have a chance to dive into that with you. But before we get into that, can you please tell us a little bit about your backstory? So specifically, how did you get into the world of sex research in the first place? Oh, boy. Well, that, that's a long story. So I'll try to <laughs> keep it short. I didn't intend to become a sex researcher. I didn't, you know, think one day I'm you know, going to grow up and be a sex researcher. I actually went to college for fashion merchandising and design and was working in the sewing machine field. I was the Western Canadian sewing specialist for White Elm, the sewing machines. And I was happily trotting around Canada doing sewing seminars and radio talk shows, telling people how to avoid skip stitches. At the time, it's like going back to, oh my gosh, I don't want to date myself. So we'll just forget that. I was in a relationship and you know he was a nice enough guy and everything but he was rather boring and I should have just ended the relationship but he happened to make the most incredible braised short ribs every Sunday night and I couldn't break up with him because I could not say goodbye to those <laughs> short ribs and so I thought I have to do something to keep myself entertained if I'm going to reap the rewards of his fine cooking and so I decided, well, why don't I take a night school class at UBC, the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And so it so happened that introduction to psychology fit into my work schedule. It was a night school course, and I signed up for it. And the professor who was teaching it was a biopsychologist who studied serotonin and rat sexual behavior. So there was a lot of emphasis in the class on sexual research. And I found the class amazingly interesting. He was a wonderful teacher and I signed up for another night school course. And it just so happened that he last moment ended up being the teacher who was teaching the course. And so again, I had more exposure to his research and he invited me to work in his lab. He was studying uh, the different serotonin receptor subtypes. We know there are many different subtypes in the brain and some of them increase sexual behavior, some of them decrease, some have no effect. So it's trying to figure out what does what so that, you know, it has real implications for drug development as we know that serotonin plays a big role in mood and depression. So I got involved doing some volunteer research in his lab. My first job was to actually, we would video record rats mating. And my job was to measure the um, number of ear wiggles per minute in very <laughs> slow motion of the female rats. And this is a sign of like proceptivity, sexual interest in the female rat when they're trying to attract a male, they hop up and down and wiggle their ears. And so 
that was my first job. And at the time I thought it was incredibly interesting and uh, (laughs) wow, I need to do more. And so I signed up for, to write kind of an honors paper and to do a review on serotonin and human sexual behavior. And it was really in the process of reading about research in our field that at the time there, there wasn't a lot of research going on in women's sexuality. You know, of course, Masters and Johnson were in the 70s, did a phenomenal job. But since that time, right up until, you know, the 90s, there wasn't a lot happening, certainly not in sexual psychophysiology. To my knowledge, there was just the one group of researchers in Amsterdam. So it seemed like a rather important and understudied area and you know that's kind of what got me in (laughs) (laughs) well thank you for sharing that so from sewing machines to short ribs to serotonin to sex research i love it never heard that transition before (laughs) yes exactly and i will just add i had a tv show called sewing and surging with cindy so now i think i need an encore sewing (laughs) surging and sex with cindy (laughs) i love that oh my gosh i am gonna have to go try and find an episode of it if i can I don't think you will. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing that. So as you mentioned, you do sexual psychophysiology research, and you're one of the few sexual psychophysiologists working in the United States today. And I know some people who do similar work who have actually moved to countries like Canada because it's really tough to get funding here to study things like genital response in a lab setting. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of what your experience has been like? And if you have any tips on, you know, how do you build a sustainable career in an area where there isn't a lot of grant funding and research and, you know, and support? Because I know a lot of people who would like to do this type of work, but they just don't feel like it's a viable option. Yeah, boy, you touch on a really important topic. So I I was funded by NIH. I had two consecutive five-year grants. But then, you know, things got even harder and harder, and I kind of just gave up on getting NIH funding. And what's kept me afloat, which is partly I've got involved in some pharmaceutical research where basically I'm just paid to run a study. I'm completely, you know, objective. I'm doing the work and they pay my lab. And so how it works in the U.S. is the company will just pay the university, but it goes into a research pot for me. So then I can then operate my research off of that. So that's one way. Um, And there are other organizations like the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health that offer small grants. Um, I've been super fortunate in that every one of my graduate students have gotten a research grant from an international organization like Ishwish. So they've, that's paid for their dissertation research. You know, not ruling out NIH and the large funding agencies. Sometimes it's the way you sell the project. Yes, they, if, you know, if you want to look at ways to enhance women's orgasm, you are never going to get funding, you know. Right. But, you know, there are really important questions out there. For example, my second grant was looking at the long-term deleterious consequences of childhood sexual abuse on later adult functioning, both relational and sexual. And so this gave me a way to study this population of women where I'm answering a lot of questions that NIH was interested in, like long-term marital satisfaction and family staying together and, you know, bigger picture, overall life satisfaction, well-being questions. But then you tag on all the sexual questions that you're interested in studying as well. So, you know, in part, it is the way you sell the project and how you present the focus. But yeah, you're out, you're absolutely right. It's easier in Canada. I mean, now there are so many Canadian sex researchers. It's really impressive. 
Yeah. So it sounds like you either have to get really creative and pursue some non-traditional funding sources or go to Canada. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, going to Canada is not all that bad. It's I not, started not, out there. <laughs> yep. And you're right. There are so many amazing sex researchers in, in Canada. And uh, sometimes I'm a, a little jealous uh, because they have a much better success rate when it comes to getting funding for their work. So let's talk a little bit about some of your other research. So you've done a lot of work on the reasons why people have sex, and you published a highly cited paper in the Archives of Sexual Behavior titled Why Humans Have Sex. And this involved a couple of studies in which you asked people to list out all of the reasons why they or someone they know has had sex in the past And that yielded 237 reasons, which you then condensed into some broader themes. Now, I have several questions about this work, but let me begin by asking you, why did you think it was important to study why people have sex? You know, some people probably think the answer to that question is obvious and that it's not necessary to study. So tell us, why is it important? Well, I think you hit on the exact reason we decided to study it is that researchers have assumed in the past that the answer is so obvious, we don't need to study it. Duh, people have sex because it feels good and they're in love and they want to reproduce. And uh, my good friend and colleague, Dr. David Buss, who I know you've had on your show, and that was a great podcast, by the way, he and I were discussing one day about the research in the field. And I said, you know, no one's ever asked the really obvious question about why do people have sex? And this led to a discussion. And and the more we thought about it, you know, there's lots of research on what turns people on, what makes you, you know, sexually aroused, what cues turn you on, what facilitates drive, what inhibits it. But wanting to have sex and having sex are different things. You know, you have sex some of the time because you want sex, but there, most people have sex a lot for reasons other than just desiring sex. You know, there'd been a few studies in the literature, but they came up with, you know, three, four different reasons. And we just suspected the reasons were much more broad. And so that's what propelled us to do the research. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes when I post about sexuality studies, like this on social media, I'll get some people saying, why do you need to study that? It's just common sense. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that argument where people say, we don't need to study that, that's common sense, is that common sense is neither common nor sensical, right? Because (laughs) different people have very different common sense beliefs. And sometimes what they say is common sense isn't backed up by the research. And so that's actually not a really good argument to make for why you shouldn't study something, right? We need the research and data to know what the answer is. And so I'm glad that uh, we have you doing this type of work to help us answer these questions. And, you know, I think they will challenge a lot of people's common sense beliefs. So what are the main or most common reasons why people have sex? And did the answers to this surprise you? Well, the most common reasons didn't surprise us. So for both men and women, the number one reason they they said they had sex was because they were attracted to the person. So that's pretty, you know, we would have suspected something like that. And then the next, like, if you look at the top 10 reasons in, in men and women, that's number one. And then the others cluster around love and emotional bonding. So they, you know, they felt like they were in love or they, they wanted to strengthen the bond. They were emotionally connected to the person. They wanted to move to the next stage in the relationship or things like physical pleasure and gratification. You know, it feels good. They were horny. They wanted an orgasm. So those were the most common reasons and not all that unexpected. But then there were a whole host of other reasons. I I mean, they just ranged from the, oh gosh, the altruistic, like having sex because you felt sorry for someone because they had acne or they, they didn't have, you know, they just weren't getting any dates kind of thing to the, you know, other end, the darker side of sex. So revenge sex, lots of revenge sex, getting back up 
partners who had cheated on them, trying to make people jealous, things like that. The most extreme one that we came across was intentionally trying to give someone a sexually transmitted disease or infection, as I should say. So pretty extreme on the on that dimension. You know, there was a lot of uh, people reporting having sex out of curiosity and, and the list of things they were curious about just went on and on, you know, curious about having sex with different genders, with different ethnicities. Uh, they wanted another notch on their belt. They wanted to be more sexually experienced. They wanted to get rid of their virginity before they got married. There were a lot of reasons that had to do with trying to boost their self-esteem. They wanted attention. They felt lonely. They wanted to feel better about themselves. They wanted to feel attractive. And then, you know, the whole section of, of course, there were a lot of pressure, feeling coerced into sex, pressured into sex, be it verbally or physically, of course. But then also under the kind of category or subcategory that we labeled as um, duty and pressure were having sex because they felt obligated. Mm -hmm. Like one woman in our study said, you know, my mother taught me to take care of my man or someone else will kind of thing. So the whole notion of mate guarding, you know, I better have sex with my partner or they're going to stray, you know, doesn't turn out to be all that effective, but it was a motive that many people endorsed. Yeah. So a a whole range. And then uh, there were many utilitarian type of reasons, which were things like, you know, wanting to lose weight or burn calories or keep warm or get rid of a headache or get rid of menstrual cramps. Long list of kind of goal-focused reasons. And then economics, sexual economics. People reported wanting to have sex for all sorts of things like being able to get a raise, get a job, I don't know, trade sex for money, of course. Prostitution's been around forever. Gucci purses, trips to Vegas, you name it. So Mm -hmm. lots of different reasons. They were pretty diverse. Now, interestingly, in that long list that you gave of reasons for sex, I don't believe you mentioned reproduction. So <laughs> where where does procreation fall in terms of, you know, that list of reasons for sex? How commonly do people actually have sex because they want to have children and reproduce? Yeah, well, reproduction was just one of many items that fell under the, the general subcategory of goal attainment, you know. Mm-hmm obtaining a child. And it was a pretty low endorsed reason. Now, we studied 1,500 people to look at the actual frequency of these items in our original paper. And most of those were college-age students, so we wouldn't expect them to you know, be having sex to want to have a child. But also when we looked even among older age groups, it was a very low base rate item. But when you think about it, Really, you know, how many children does, let's say, a woman want to have in her lifetime? Well, probably most people, not many, have more than two, let's say. That's on average. So the period of time that they're trying to have each of those two children is a relatively small period of their sexual life. So in some ways, it's not that surprising, you know, Mm -hmm. that that's not a motive for having sex a lot of the time. So it sounds like there are a lot of different reasons to have sex and that sex helps us to meet a wide range of needs, right? You talked about so many things there that I think are just interesting and fascinating where, you know, it's not just about the pleasure or the procreation or, you know, some of these other common sense beliefs that people have about why we have sex. You know, it's often about meeting a deeper psychological need, such as deepening that bond you have with a partner or making yourself feel better or sometimes using it to get back at someone else. You know, there's that whole dark side of sex. And, you know, I've, I've come across that one that you mentioned where people intentionally want to transmit an STI. In fact, that's actually been 
given a name. Some people actually fetishize that, where it's a turn on to them to be able to do it. And in the research, this has been called gift giving. And then there are some people who fantasize about actually contracting an STI, and that's called bug chasing. And so that's just a whole other, you know, just interesting way that people fetishize STIs sometimes. That's not common at all, but it does happen sometimes. And then there's also, you know, in that list of reasons that I read about in your work, there were also some people who were using sex intentionally to hurt themselves, to punish themselves. This is Mm -hmm. really sort of sex as self-injury. And Mm -hmm. I actually published uh, an article on my blog recently where there was this whole study on people who engaged in sex for self-injury. And it was really interesting to look at the psychology behind that, where the people who are doing this will go out and they'll put themselves in these dangerous sexual situations where they know they're going to get hurt or where they know there's this risk of them being sexually assaulted. And they're using this as a mood regulation strategy. So there's some negative affect preceding it, and then they'll put themselves in this risky situation, and then that has some effect on their mood that they perceive to be positive, but then afterwards there's this rebound effect where they feel even worse about themselves afterwards. So it's really this self-defeating pattern of behavior. Wow, that I I'm not familiar with that um, literature. So that's really that's that's fascinating. Thank you for telling me about that. Getting back to what you were saying about STIs, yes, the bug chasing and what what you were talking about, the fe- kind of fetishist part of it. That's super fascinating. When we went to write our book, we interviewed many people about their reasons like we we asked them you know if they endorsed some of these more uncommon reasons we asked them to tell us why or give an example and in terms of wanting to give someone a sexually transmitted infection i remember this one woman talking about how she had um she had herpes and she was so afraid that she would never find a partner because she had this disease as she referred to it and so she wanted to have sex when she had an outbreak so that she could give it to other partners and then they'd be in it together and they wouldn't leave her Wow. So, yeah. So, you know, it's multifaceted. Even within each reason, there's different reasons, you know? Yeah. Holy cow. That's like entrapment by STI. That's, I, yeah. Yeah. That I don't think would turn out well, right? Probably not. (laughs) Wow. So, there are tons of reasons why we have sex. Sex serves a lot of different purposes for us. And something else that you dive into in your work is you explore the differences in men's and women's motivations for having sex. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. how do those reasons for having sex differ for men and for women? How are they similar? How are they different? Yes. So first of all, there's this overwhelming difference between males and females in that just about, well, not even just about, I think on all 237 reasons, we just had men endorse them with greater frequency. So bottom line, men just have sex more. So all of those reasons received higher endorsements among males than females. And, you know, we know this already. Certainly there's wide variability within gender. I don't want to ignore that fact. And certainly when we plot out, you know, sex drive for men, sex drive for women, there's overlapping bell curves. But whatever way you want to measure it or define desire and drive, you know, there, there are huge mean differences between men and women. And so it's not surprising that men were endorsing many more reasons. So if we take that into consideration and a kind of control for the fact that men are having so much more sex so that we're on kind of an even playing field. And we look at, you know, the percentage of time that they're having sex when they have sex, then that's when more gender differences emerge. So what we find is physical reasons like having sex for an orgasm or they're horny or, you know, just the physical gratification that's higher in men. Although, you know, 
it was kind of, I have to say, nice to find that women endorse physical gratification. Like that was one of their top 10 reasons for sure. So it wasn't as big a gender difference as maybe some of the literature might suggest, but certainly men were higher on physical reasons. Men were higher on reasons that had to do with sexual variety. So, you know, they wanted to experience multiple partners or you get the idea, (laughs) sexual (laughs) variety. A lot of questions we asked had to do with opportunity. Like they were available. The opportunity presented itself. You know, that was one of the items. And there was a huge gender difference in that. So men were more likely to say they had sex because the opportunity was there. It was physically gratifying and they wanted the sexual variety. So all of those things fit well within kind of an evolutionary psychology understanding. And then also, if you look at the items under attraction, the physical cues or so the person had nice hair the person had nice eyes the person smelled good the person you know had a nice body things like that those visual cues were endorsed more frequently among men than women and then if we look at more the love emotional bonding although in our original paper, we reported that there weren't mean differences. We didn't control for the fact that you know men were higher on everything. And so the fact that there were no overall differences, even though men were having so much more sex, is actually a striking difference. Mm-hmm. That brought women way up in the proportion of sexual events that they were having. They were having them for love, commitment, emotional attachment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of this has got me thinking about all of the other factors beyond just gender that must moderate some of these differences. Like, for example, reasons for sex probably differ if you're talking about having casual sex versus sex in a committed long-term relationship. And also, if you're looking within women, maybe reasons for sex differ for women who have an easier time reaching orgasm, right? Because we know that women tend to take longer on average than men to reach orgasm. Women are less likely to have an orgasm during a hookup. We know that the more repeat hookups that women have with the same partner, the greater their odds of having an orgasm go up. And so, you know, that might also suggest that reasons for having sex with a particular partner could change based on the amount of sexual experience you have with that given partner. And so as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about, gosh, this must be much more complex and complicated than this when you start looking at you know these very specific circumstances and different groups and populations and different types of sex that people have. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. I think particularly for all of the items that have to do with physical pleasure, that's when you would certainly see the role of sexual function, sexual pleasure play a important motivational role in having sex for those those reasons, clearly. Some of the others, though, just like the goal attainment, all the, you know, wanting to be popular, enhance your reputation, getting revenge, impressing friends, competition, I, I think that those are so almost disconnected from sexual pleasure. I think they're yeah. getting a different type of pleasure out of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if they would differ all that much in terms of the degree to which they're actually enjoying sex or able to attain orgasm. And now that's also making me wonder about, you know, how people might have multiple motives or reasons in a given sexual encounter and how you might be able to combine a bunch of these different reasons in in a single sexual instance. So super fascinating. I totally agree. I mean, it's also complex. And I think one thing that I hope people got out of reading the book, and I, I think that you'll appreciate this with your social psychology background, is that the idea, you know, we tend to want to say, okay, you're having sex because you're in love and because you want to deepen the bond and, you know, you're experiencing sexual pleasure. Those are great reasons for having sex. And you're having sex because you feel 
guilty and you don't want your partner to sway and you feel like, you know, one woman said, I'd, I'd rather just spend five minutes having sex with him than an hour listening to him whine about not having sex. You know? <laughs> and so and we, we kind of want to say, oh, you know, duty, sex, obligation. You know, that's not that's not a very good reason for having sex. But we need to think more about because, again, there's so much individual variability within even each of these reasons why people are having sex, why they are having it for those reasons. And if we think of it in terms of, you know, approach versus avoidance motives, if you're having sex out of duty because you are afraid that your husband's going to have an affair and you're feeling pushed into it and afterwards you feel really lousy about it. You feel kind of used and degraded. Well, that's not such a good feeling. That's not a good outcome. But if you're having duty sex because you really love your partner and he's or she is so happy afterwards and they treat you better. And as Rosemary Basson, you know, talked about how a lot of people have sex, not for the sex, but for the spinoffs, what comes after sex, the hugging, the kissing, the feelings of closeness and connection. You know, so if you're having duty sex for that reason and afterwards you feel good about it, well, then there's nothing wrong with it. You should, that's fine. You know, it doesn't, you don't need to feel badly about it for that reason. It's a, you know, it's a relationship maintaining strategy. Yeah. So it's, it's okay to be in it for the spinoff. <laughs> I think everything that you said, you know, just again, highlights how complex human sexuality is. And speaking of that complexity, we have much more to discuss, including whether our reasons for having sex change with age and how sexual arousal changes sexual decision-making. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. If you've ever wanted to start your own podcast, you need the best recording program out there, and it's Zencaster. I've tried a lot of different platforms, but Zencaster's quality is unparalleled. Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code, SEXANDPSYCH, that's one word, SEXANDPSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, to save 40% off of their professional plan. Visit Zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com. This episode of the Sex and Psychology Podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their Vitaflux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. Vitaflux can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. Promescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S. C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Cindy Meston, author of the book, Why Women Have Sex. Now, before the break, we were talking all about reasons for having sex. But one other question I want to ask you about this is whether our reasons for having sex change with age. Have you done any work that can shed light on how our motivations and reasons for sex change over the lifespan? I've done one study with three different age groups, but truth be told, we need to look at it. It only went up to, I believe it was age 50. So we, we need to go well beyond that. I have no doubt these, these reasons change. If we just think even about the four main categories that we divided these 237 reasons into, which are the physical reasons, the goal attainment reasons, the emotional reasons, and then insecurity reasons. You can just imagine as a person gets more sexually experienced, they're going to be less likely to have sex to for social status seeking reasons of enhancing their reputation and pressing friends competition. You know, and if they're in a committed relationship, then they're not going to be having sex for revenge or to boost their self-esteem, let's say necessarily. But 
as people are in longer term relationships, then sure, the still the reasons of you know insecurity might be there. The the need to kind of keep your partner happy, using sex as a way to make yourself still feel attractive. I think those certainly would still come into play. Certainly love and commitment, expression. I mean, that's something I didn't talk about, but people use sex as a way of communicating thank you or sorry, making up after a fight, things like that. And, you know, we like to think the physical reasons are still there, but certainly, you know, sex drives waxes and wanes across a lifetime and sexual problems in one partner has an impact as you know you're well aware on both partners so those things would likely need more navigating over time in the relationship and maybe they uh change in the frequency to which they are serve as motivators for having sex yeah and that's yet another reason why we need more funding for sex research because the vast majority of the research is conducted on young college student populations. And as a result, we don't know all that much about sexuality across the lifespan. And that's a huge and important gap in our knowledge because there's no definitive endpoint to sex in our lives. Just because you reach a certain age doesn't mean that your sexual desire shuts off or that you're no longer capable of having sex, right? So we need a lot more research on sexuality and aging for sure, not just in terms of reasons for having sex sex, but just across the board. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Now, let's talk about some of your other fascinating lines of research. You've done quite a bit of work on the two main components of sexual arousal, the genital component, which refers to the physiological aspect of arousal, and then the psychological component, which refers to the mental engagement that we have with sex. And these things usually go together. But sometimes they don't. So for example, you can have a genital response, but not feel sexually aroused. So what can you tell us about why this desynchrony sometimes happens and what does it mean? Yeah, boy, that that's a question that has been a hot topic in, in the literature for a while now. I'm sure you're familiar with Meredith Chiver's work where she yep. looked at this very issue of desynchrony between genital and psychological responses and how they differ between men and women. And in man, if you bring a man into a laboratory and you show an erotic film and you ask him how aroused he is and you measure his erection, which is the, of course, physiological component of sexual arousal in men, you get a very close connection. Like correlations are in the 0.9, so which is really high for psychology. That's amazing. And you do the same thing in women. You know, that's what I do in my lab. We show women a sexually explicit film. We measure genital blood flow using something called a vaginal photoplethysmograph, which is like a small tampon-shaped device that the woman inserts her into her vagina. It emits a light and it measures the amount of backscattered light. So it the more blood in vaginal tissue, which is an indicator of genital sexual arousal, it, it's reflected in the amount of light reflected back. So it gives us a pretty precise but indirect measure of genital blood flow, which is also correlated with vaginal lubrication. So you do that in women. And in contrast to the 0.9 correlations you get in men, you get somewhere about 0.23, very low correlations. And this is a real issue. I mean, one of the things I think it has huge implications is drug development. You know, in 1998, Viagra was introduced to the market, and now there are many different flavors of Viagra. It's a hugely successful <laughs> drug. You know, it's <laughs> used for recreational use. It's, it's easily attainable. It's made a ton of money. And I actually joined the University of Texas faculty in 1998. And so I was a new faculty member when Eli Lilly and Pfizer and the other big pharmaceutical companies were trying to develop the female equivalent of, you know, the pink Viagra. So I, even though I was a new faculty member and fairly, you know, I mean, I studied this in undergrad and graduate school, but I was still pretty new to the field. I was still one of the only ones who was operating this kind of lab. And so I was fortunate to be able to do the initial drug trials for Viagra and women. That was in 1998. And what we found was 
not unlike what you see in man, is Viagra causes blood flow into the genital tissue of women. So we were getting a genital response. But then when we asked women, you know, how aroused are you? They, it, it didn't change from the placebo condition. So there was this disconnect. And, and you know, that's the, that is why we still don't have a drug for women's arousal today, because it's meaningless. If it's just putting blood into your vagina, you know, you can do that with, I've shown you can do that with exercise, with tense acute exercise. It has to be meaningful psychologically to, to a woman. And so why isn't it? Well, nobody really knows the answer. I have a couple of theories. I think one reason is really just pretty simple in that if we look at anatomical differences between men and women, you know, men have a penis that they feel very comfortable with. They use their penis to urinate. They're used to handling their penis from the time they're little boys. You know, there's an immediate feedback when they have an erection. It's very visible. They attend to it, you know. And so this, I mean, it sounds odd, but men have a closer relationship with their penis. You know, men Mm -hmm. often name their penis. I don't know many (laughs) women who name their vaginas. (laughs) You know, it's just the way it is. And so... It's this way more apparent, visible, noticeable, attention-seeking response from male's anatomy. And so I think from, you know, that very early on developmentally, they're, they're used to attending to cues from their, their penis. And women aren't, just anatomically, but also developmentally, you know, probably less so today than 20 years ago but a lot of women were socialized you know they don't touch down there like it's kind of a biohazard zone and so that can also explain why there's this huge gender difference in masturbation between men and women men masturbate more and they begin masturbation at an earlier age well it's you know it, it can explain that as well and so I think that's part of it, that women just aren't used to attending to genital cues. They haven't developed to, and anatomically, the cues are weaker. You know, then I think there's a whole other issue of context, contextual cues that women are so sensitive to. And this isn't just pertaining to sex. I mean, you know this very well. I'm sure women are tending to environmental cues, what's going on in their environment. And I believe it was Kim Wallen's lab in Emory where they've done eye tracking between, um, right? Yeah. And they show what do men look at in a sexual scenario? Well, their eyes go to the breasts, their eyes go to the genitals, back, forth, back, forth. You get a woman to try to make sense of a sexual scenario and she's scanning the whole environment, right? Her eyes are going all over the place and you draw it out and it looks like, you know, the constellations in the sky and very little attention to the people. And so I think women are attending to contextual cues more so than bodily cues. They're trying to figure out, is this, is this a scenario that I want to have sex? Is this a good scenario for me is, you know, am I judging it appropriately? So you, you take those two things and the latter of which I think, again, fits with an evolutionary perspective of, you know, women, it's, it's, they invest much more in a pregnancy. It's nine months of bodily resources. Then they have to care for the child and for many, many years before it can live on its own. They can only have a few children in their lifetime. They need to be careful choosers. They can't just, you know, have sex with whatever person comes available to them. It's much more risky for them to have to to not choose carefully. I guess is the best way of putting it. Mm-hmm. 
It's got me thinking about a, a few things there. One is the attentional focus research. I, I recall the study that you're talking about with, you know, what do men and women focus on when they're looking at porn? And, you know, one of the differences that emerged was that women were more likely to look at the background features, right? Uh, you know, the, the context and setting in which the sex is taking place. And then there was also some other research I've seen that has looked at, you know, what it is that women are focusing on in an erotic stimulus and then how that relates to sexual difficulties and sexual dysfunction. And what they find is that the women who focus more on the background features in the erotic stimulus are more likely to experience sexual difficulties. And so that makes you wonder if by changing attentional focus, you can potentially address certain types of sexual difficulties because maybe that's one of the things that's interfering with or impeding sexual mm -hmm. arousal is that they're not focusing on the you know more potent sexual cues absolutely i agree i agree with you and Lori brado's done some interesting work on mindfulness the whole idea of you know getting women to attend to their genitals and and this is certainly you know stems from masters and johnson the whole concept of spectatoring which they wrote beautifully about and volumes about that you know in a sexual scenario if you're focusing on these you know contextual or environmental cues and you're not focusing focusing on the genital sensations, then you're not going to progress through the sexual response cycle. You're just going to kind of be stuck. And it's almost like you become an observer of yourself watching the sexual scenario as opposed to being in the moment, experiencing the sensations, the smells, the sounds that then feed into further arousal and ultimately orgasm for many people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to go back to one other thing you mentioned earlier about the Viagra studies in women, I find that so fascinating that it can create this general response, mm -hmm. but it doesn't create mm -hmm. the psychological response. And that makes me wonder if, so if you're talking about women who feel sexual arousal and desire, but their genital response isn't happening, like they have that sort of desynchrony, yeah. could yeah, Viagra yeah, yeah. potentially be helpful yes. to them? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, thank you for asking that because I, I, you hit on a really important point, which is I think those initial studies that were done looking to see whether Viagra was effective for women, we, we didn't know that there's all these subgroups of women with different types of sexual arousal disorder. So it was a very heterogeneous group of women who had, you know, some of them complained of a lack of genital response, some a lack of couldn't feel turned on and, and and some had both, some had neither. And so I think you are absolutely dead on when, when you say that for women who used to have a genital response and then something changed, you know, be it childbirth, be it an illness of some sort, a surgery, medications, um, menopause, and now they're not feeling that genital response and they miss it. Then, if you give them back that genital response, they're going to attend to it. They're going to notice it's back. It's going to be meaningful to them. And it's going to help facilitate further psychological arousal, right? But I mean, the two obviously do go together, and there's this feedback system both ways. But yeah, for the woman who has a genital response and is just not feeling turned on in a sexual situation, then, you know, raising that genital response higher, I mean, you know, we don't know the answer. Maybe if you made it such an intense response, <laughs> it would just grab her attention and she would stop thinking that, you know, the dry cleaning needs to be picked up and the dog needs to be fed and what have you. But I don't think in the big picture that it would be particularly helpful. Yeah, fascinating. Now, we're running short on time, but I have one other question for you about one of your other recent publications, which looked at the impact of sexual arousal on sexual decision-making. And there are some previous studies that have found that when we're sexually aroused, we make riskier decisions. So for example, in episode 25 of the podcast, I had Dr. Shana Skakun-Sparling on, and we talked about some of her research showing that when people are sexually aroused, that they make riskier moves in a game of blackjack. And there are also some other studies showing that when people are sexually aroused, that seems to increase interest in 
in sexual risk-taking. So what have you found in your work about how sexual arousal impacts decision-making and whether that differs for men and for women? Yes. So that's something that's been looked at in males previously. And you are correct that they, they found that if you increase sexual arousal, then men are more likely to engage in the sexual risk-taking behaviors. We try to replicate that in a laboratory study. And we did find that it, it replicated in that, yes, sexual arousal did lead men to endorse that they'd be more willing to engage in risky sexual behavior. We did not have that same finding in, in women. It did not kind of push them into the high risk taking range. Again, it was a pretty small sample size study, and we need to do a follow-up study on that. But I think, you know, there's still there's still a monitoring higher order processing in women that is saying, no, be careful, make careful sexual choices, even under the influence of higher levels of sexual arousal. Yeah, and I think that totally makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint that maybe arousal would affect decision-making differently for men and for women because the risks associated with different sexual activities are going to be different across uh, the sexes. Right, exactly. And when, and also, I mean, if you just think about it ancestrally, you know, if if a man is about to be, you know, eaten by a predator and, you know, he's he needs to be sexually, he needs to be able to have sex under an arousing, risk-taking situation, he still needs to be able to perform to have, like, one last sex act to spread his genes, right? But women, I mean, arousal has nothing to do with reproduction production. So it's not going to help women get pregnant uh, at all. So it's not kind of necessary in the whole um, evolutionary reproductive story. Oh my gosh. And that's now got me thinking about how (laughs) when people are in these high fear states, like that there is sometimes that, that genital response, like in that, that sort of fight or flight state where there's that release of adrenaline, like we've, we've seen in some research that that can facilitate genital arousal. And maybe that's because, you know, you're afraid you realize it's your last chance to, to reproduce. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, exactly. I've written about that because my original studies, when I was looking at the effects of intense acute exercise on sexual arousal in women the the whole reason for doing that was to see whether sympathetic activation facilitates arousal in in women and speaking genitally absolutely it does 20 minutes of intense acute exercise either on a treadmill or on a bicycle increases blood flow to the genitals by at least 150 percent so it does that but whether it's telling women okay you know have sex is is another story. It's not just, you know, whenever I presented that research, inevitably someone uh, in the crowd, and I won't name the gender, will say, well, can I just hang out at the gym and will women, you know, want to have sex with me? And I'm like, "Mm, no, you know, it still depends on context. (laughs) (laughs) They still got to find you attractive. (laughs) Try something else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, Cindy, you are a fascinating person who has done amazing research. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. It was really a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Yes, absolutely. I have a website. It is mestonlab.com, M-E-S-T-O-N.com. There's a whole pile of information there on the studies that we currently have going. I have write-ups about uh, all of the different areas of studies I've done. We've got a lot of sex resources added on the website and, of course, all of my publications. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, which was made on Zencaster, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Cindy's book, Why Women Have Sex. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.